Well, good morning, Sailorville. It is really good to be here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Trevor Mears, and uh, I'm a pastor at Lakeside Fellowship in Polk City, which is a church that Sailorville Church actually planted way back at the very beginning of what is now known as the Engage Network. And to be honest, it still feels a little strange for me to introduce myself as a pastor because it does not feel very long ago that my wife and I walked into this room for the very first time. We sat in the very back row where there's very little leg room and we didn't know a single person. And we wound up spending four years here at Sailorville. And I can say no matter where I go, I will always consider myself a Sailorville alumni. So it is a huge privilege to be back with you, uh, sharing the word of God. Uh, and it, it's humbling because I still, in so many ways, I feel like that guy in the back row, just soaking it all in. And in many ways, the passage that we're looking at today from the book of James, it speaks directly to my story of finding God's leading while we were here at Sailorville. Because in this letter, James is concerned with professing Christians who sound a lot like what my wife and I had experienced before we got here. Before we came to Sailorville, we were Christians. We'd been involved in churches for a long time, but we were around a lot of Christians who were teaching things that were accurate, but they weren't showing a lot of love for people. They had sound doctrine, but we weren't seeing lives changed. And looking back, I think about when we got here to Sailorville, we were kind of like those deflated Halloween or now Christmas front yard uh, decorations that they just land there all flat in your yard until somebody comes along and flicks the switch on that fan. And when we got here, it was like the switch on the fan went on and we felt ourselves starting to inflate and starting to rise up and stand up. And the question is, what did we see? What was that change for us? And for us is that we saw lives firsthand transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I'd heard that taught a lot, but now I was seeing this stuff we believe in, it works. And if it works, then I had better go tell more people about this because it changes lives. And then in a twist that I never saw coming, I felt like God was calling me to change my career, go to seminary, and eventually I accepted a pastoral position at Lakeside. What we experienced and what changed the course of our lives was what James talks about in this letter. Martin Luther said, the world does not need a definition of religion as much as it needs a demonstration. And that's kind of funny coming from Martin Luther because as Pastor Pat said the first week in this series, Luther was no big fan of the book of James. But he is talking right out of James' playbook when he says that. Because this morning, we're gonna look at three behaviors that James says show not whether we can accurately define religion, but whether we're actually demonstrating what we say we believe. And that's gonna show that our religion has to come from the inside out. And here at the end of chapter one and into chapter two, James is focusing on the theme of self-deception. Specifically, he is talking to people who think they're doing pretty well spiritually. Last week, Pastor Jason preached on verses 23 and 24, and he was talking about people who know a lot of things, but don't often do a lot of things. As Martin Luther might put it, they're people who can define religion, but they're not demonstrating it with the way that they live. And James is going to spell out how to know if we're one of those people. So let's read James chapter one, verses 26 and 27. It'll be on your screen there if you don't have your Bible with you. 
James 1, 26, 27 says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That ought to be a sobering passage for all of us good church going folk. Because James tells us it's possible, you can be really religious and you can have some significant problems. And he lays those out in verse 26. He says, you can practice religion, yet it could be worthless. In the verse 27, he talks about religion that is pure and undefiled, which obviously implies you can have impure and defiled religion. And we should clarify what this word defiled means. It's not one we throw around or a lot, right? You don't sniff the milk and go, whoa, that's defiled, okay? So what is he talking about here? Well, the, the Greek word that's behind undefiled, it appears three other times in scripture. And those other usages are really telling for what James is getting at. So one of the places this, this word appears is in Hebrews chapter seven. It refers to Christ's sinless nature. That's undefiled. Then again, in Hebrews chapter 13, it refers to a marriage relationship that is pure where both parties are faithful to one another. And then lastly, in 1 Peter chapter one, it refers to heaven itself. So do you get what James is saying? He's saying God's bar is very high for the religion he's looking for. It has to be as pure as Christ, as pure as a faithful marriage, as pure as heaven. That's what God's looking for. And as James gets ready to tell us how to look at our religion, examine it for that kind of priority, remember again, he's talking to people who think they're doing it pretty much right. These are not people who are trying to put on a fake religious show. They're people who think they're genuine. And that really got my attention as I studied this. I mean, I'm a guy, I try to do what the Bible says. I mean, it's my whole job now. I'm teaching people what the Bible says. How do I make sure I'm not one of those people going through religious motions and really I'm doing something that at best is worthless and at worst it could be impure and defiled. Well, James doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us three tests here that we're gonna look at this morning of how to tell if we have pure religion. Number one, pure religion controls your tongue. Now James is gonna spend most of chapter three talking about the dangers of the human mouth. So you're gonna get a lot more on this in this series, but it's such a big deal to him that he lists the first sign of worthless self-deceiving religion as an out of control mouth. Go ahead and add your thumbs and your fingers to that on social media and however else you communicate. Reading this, it made me think of car engines, a topic about which I have like no expertise, just for the record. But even if I did know a lot about car engines, I know this much. If a car is sitting there with the engine off, I cannot tell you what's going on inside the compression chamber of that car. I don't know. But if you turn it on and you drive it down the street, even in front of me, and I see a big cloud of blue smoke billowing out of that car, I can diagnose what's going on, right? What's happening? You're burning oil. I can tell by the exhaust coming out of it, it's revealing what is actually burning deep down in the heart of that engine. James is saying your words are that kind of telltale signal of the fuel that's being burned inside your heart. And when James says that, he is just building on the teaching of Jesus himself. Look at Luke 6.45. Jesus said this, the good person 
out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. But then look at this, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We have a lot of fun poking at people with no filter, don't we? Because we all have perfect filters, right? Nothing ever slips out of our mouths. We always keep ourselves from saying things we didn't mean to. But James is saying in verse 26, don't fool yourself. Jesus is saying in Luke, don't fool yourself. We like to think we can harbor secret thoughts and we can let them mull in there and they're never gonna cross our lips because we've got the filter in place. We especially can start to think we can pull that off if we're religious because we can start to think like religion, it's, it's like this super filter that drops into place and it's gonna transform all of my jealous, gossipy, envious, bitter thoughts into something that sounds really spiritual when it comes out of my mouth. Jesus and James are both saying no, not how it works. Jesus and James are both saying, it is a very short, very direct flight from your heart to your lips. And we get reminders of that at the worst possible times, don't we? A few years ago, I was, I was working at a company and I was just increasingly frustrated with the leadership. I felt like they were not very clear on the vision thing. Um, they didn't explain stuff to all of us very well. They, they didn't give us the background and big decisions that affected all of us. And one day it just came to a head because it was a little company and the owner slash CEO, an email goes out, says there's a retirement party for this guy tomorrow. And we knew he was scaling back. We had no idea that meant tomorrow he's out of here. And I was ticked, like, here we go again. You just don't tell us anything. And I run into my boss in the hallway. He's like, hey, what do you think about that email? I said, well, just add it to the list of stuff we gotta live with working here. And immediately like, oh, that was a bad idea. <laughs> immediately, I thought that, uh, that was selfish and that was childish and that was whiny and frankly, it was insubordinate. I thought, I gotta do something about this. So that night, I'm like, I'm gonna send a text to my boss. So I send him a text, I'm like, hey man, sorry about what I said. I, I was having a, a tough day, a lot of stuff on my mind. It just came out wrong, you didn't deserve that. Next morning, I get to work. He walks into my office with a cup of coffee for me, which is a bad sign. Because he, he never does this. And he sits down, he's like, hey, I know you said you were having a tough day, but you wouldn't have said that if you hadn't been thinking it for a long time. You gotta level with me. And I was busted right? Because I had convinced myself, oh, I can think all these things and I'll never actually say them. But out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And my heart was abundant with selfish frustration because I deserved more information than these people were giving me. And it just poured out at the wrong time. True religion does not insert a super filter between your heart and your mouth that keeps you from saying what you're thinking. James is telling us that true religion actually changes the fuel that is burning in your heart. And that little outburst showed me I had not confessed to God the fuel that I was letting sit in there, my bitterness. When James talks about our tongues, it's important to remember he is not talking about something we do so much as he's talking about who we are. Because what you are drives what you do. What you are drives what you do. The next thing pure religion does is number two, it cares for people on the margins. So let's clarify a few more terms that are here in verse 27. First, James says, care for widows and orphans. Does he literally mean that's the only people we need to care for? Well, obviously not. 
what he's doing is he is pointing to the, the most marginalized people in his culture, the people with no safety net, the people that nobody cares about. And he's saying, let them represent all of those people that are around you that you need to care about. Second, what does James mean? He uses this word in our ESV version is what I read, the English Standard Version, the word visit. When he says visit widows and orphans, what's he mean by that? Well, he's using a Greek word that carries a lot of weight in the New Testament. When you see this word visit elsewhere, it is not just a drop in. The Bible is often using the word to refer for caring for sick people. What it fully means to visit someone is to look at them, notice them, and then care for them. Yet again, James is saying, it's not enough to just know about a need. You gotta go do something about it. And when James uses this word visit, he's using a word that has Jesus written all over it. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, verses 36 through 40. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you what? You visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you in sick or in prison? And there it is again, visit you. The king will answer them truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is saying that when we see the needy, the sick, the hungry, the people on the margins, and we do something about it, we've done it for him personally. And then we see it again, Luke 1, 68. The, the context here is Jesus has been born and his parents take him to the temple to show him to this priest, Zechariah, who's been watching for the coming of the Messiah. And here's what Zechariah says as he looks at Jesus because he realizes Jesus is God come to earth. And he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has what? Visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah is saying the God of heaven has come down in human form into a sin-cursed world so that he can deliver the cure that we need, which is paying for our, our sin in our place. And right there, that is the key that unlocks all of this. This is why a person who has truly had their heart changed by becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, this is why they care for people on the margins. Because a person who's been transformed by Christ gives selflessly of themselves because I know Jesus did that for me. I received it before I go and give this to anyone else. When Christianity first started spreading around the Mediterranean region, Christians stood out from the crowd. And the main reason was the way they were loving on people. When there were plagues in the Roman Empire, Christians would go and help the sick, often at the cost of their own life because they got infected. Did you know that the first modern type hospital designed to help anybody in society, it started in AD 370, it was started by Christians. They saw the need and they filled it. And the Christians, they did not care about your social status. They didn't care about your race. They didn't care about your family pedigree. And that was a radical idea because in that culture, somebody was different than me, you didn't help them. And frankly, women, children, anybody with a disability, they were at best property and at worst, they were completely disposable. And the Christians came along and said, I don't care who you are, you matter. We're gonna help you. The breakthrough concept that was driving the followers of Jesus was that Christians did not love people because the people deserved to be loved. 
Christians loved people because the Christians themselves had become loving people. To the Christian, love does not have to be earned by the recipient. It's just something Christians do because Christians are loving people because Christ has changed them. This kind of love, it has a very distinct meaning in the New Testament. It's not romantic love. It's not brotherly love. It's called agape love. You've probably heard that term. And what agape love is distinctively, it is love that does not care what it gets back in return. It doesn't count the cost. It just does. And Christians got this idea by looking at the nature of God because they looked at how God sent Jesus to pay for our sins when we didn't deserve it and a lot of us wouldn't accept it. And God did it because 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. So now we're back to James' theme again. Christianity, it's an inside out religion. If you are a Christian, your inner being has been transformed by faith and the Holy Spirit living in you. That means you can't help it but love people. You can't, your nature is now to love people. And today that kind of selfless love, that's as radical now as it was 2000 years ago, isn't it? We live in a culture where people say, you better put yourself first because nobody else is gonna do it. And as Christians, we can get labeled on this because too often we start to think, well, we'll help people as long as they fall in line with our beliefs. We'll help people as long as they're making the effort I deem worthy enough to justify me helping you. But true Christians, true Christian love, maybe we should call it love undefiled by the world. True Christian love says, I will serve you no matter what your attitude I will serve you no matter what your baggage and I do all that because I know Jesus came to save me before I even knew I needed a savior. To have a transformed heart that thinks like this, you have to recognize how utterly hopeless you were before Christ came and paid the price for your sin. Your only hope to pay off the sin debt we all owe is that God sent his son to pay it in our place. And if we accept that gift of salvation, we want to go pay that forward to everybody we can by serving them with the kind of love God showed us. That doesn't earn our salvation, but it demonstrates it. And it is the reasonable response to being saved. I recently heard a Scottish pastor named Ross Ferguson point out poor people are often more generous than rich people. Why is that? Because they know how much it means when they receive help and they wanna do it for other people. I have seen this so much firsthand. I've been to a lot of third world countries and it is convicting and humbling when you are sitting there with somebody who makes maybe 10 bucks a day. They open their home, they give you a meal, they take care of you while you're there. And then they even, this happens all the time, they give me gifts to take back to my insanely rich family because they wanna bless me in that way. We spend a lot of time telling our kids and ourselves in places like Sailorville Church and at Lakeside Fellowship, and rightly so, we're, we're among the richest people who've ever lived, that's true, economically. But what we have to be telling ourselves is spiritually, we are the most poverty-stricken people in history because of our sin. That's what we have to remind ourselves, that remind us we are totally dependent on God's mercy. Jesus even talks like this in Luke 4, verse 18. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor. He doesn't just mean economically. He means spiritually poor people. That's you and me. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. We are the spiritually poor, no matter how many digits are in your bank statement. With Jesus, we are beggars who have found spiritual bread. And with that in mind, we should be eager to go help other people. So what holds us back? Why are so many Christians so slow to do this? It's not because you're selfish, right? Because none of us are selfish. That's not it. Maybe you got some practical concerns that we all do. You say, well, I mean, we can't help everybody. And there's gonna be people I help, they're just gonna take advantage of us. And I've certainly been in those situations, just like anybody who's ever tried to help someone. But for everybody who takes advantage of it, I've got so many stories I could tell you about people in our church right now, like a single mom who's not able to pay the bills because her husband got thrown in prison. Or the grandparents who are struggling because they've taken in their grandkids because mom and dad got tired of it and they bounced. Or the couple who has two kids with the same debilitating disease that they're trying to care for at the same time. These are actual people in our church family now. People we have relationships with for weeks and months who know Christ and are part of our body. These are people, if I was gonna use James' word, that we visit because we see their need and we step in to help them. Now, obviously, if you're gonna help people, be a good steward of God's resources. Work through established channels wherever you can. Right here at Sailorville, you can get involved in Hartford, Des Moines. It's got partners that they know are legitimate uh, ones to work with here in Des Moines. They need Christians to come alongside them. You can go help and be a part of that. But even when you do everything as wisely as you can, you might, okay, change that, you will. You will get taken advantage of some of the time. But that's the way of agape love. Agape love does not count the cost. Agape love doesn't say, okay, I'm gonna do a pros and cons, a a payback on this thing. I'm just gonna help people. And I heard someone say, I would rather get to heaven and find out that I've been taken advantage of than to get there and be chastised for not trying. And it reminds me of a conversation that uh, a famous evangelist named D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody had. Um, It was about his evangelistic practices, but I think it applies here too. A lady came up to him and she said, Mr. Moody, I don't think I like your evangelistic practices. And he said, oh, how do you evangelize? She said, well, I don't. He said, hmm. He said, well, to be honest with you, I don't always like the way I do it either, but I like my way of doing it better than I like your way of not doing it. And I think the same ought to be said for us visiting widows and orphans and the others on the margins. Even if our method isn't perfect, I guarantee it's better than what's being done by a Christian who won't even try. And finally, the third test that James gives us to check whether we have pure religion is number three, pure religion casts off worldly influences. Christians have gotten really sideways on this one over the years in a lot of ways. I grew up in churches that were pretty much obsessed with the idea that if we had contact with people who weren't Christians, they would pollute us. It was bad enough that when our kids club would have visitor night, I wanted my visitor points. I would call my cousin from out of town to come visit because I didn't know a single unsaved kid. I'm pretty sure the expression, I wouldn't touch them with a 10 foot pole, it must've been invented by somebody at my church growing up because that's the way we treated the world. They're gonna contaminate you, don't go near them. And I'm guessing there's not a lot of you here that are hiding out in the church basement like that, but we still gotta be so careful about this idea because a lot of us tend to live in holy huddles. 
You heard that one? The holy huddle. That's where the only people I have relationships with are people who think exactly what I think. And we're not out there rubbing shoulders with the world. That is not what James is talking about when he says, don't be, uns- don't be stained by the world. Unstained does not mean unconnected. Let's look at what Jesus prayed. John 17, this is the high priestly prayer, it's called. Jesus is praying for his current followers and all of his future followers, which is all of us, if we're believers. And Jesus said this, specifically, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus clearly, he's not giving us a no contact order with people who don't believe what we believe. And neither is James. James is still talking about our hearts. He is talking about how critical it is that our minds be shaped by the gospel and by Bible teaching, which means that we don't let our minds get shaped by the influences of the culture that we live in. Here's a a big question to ask yourself. What is the loudest voice in your head? What's the loudest voice in your head? There are a lot of voices in our world, aren't there? People telling you how you should be doing things, how you should think. There's coworkers, there's podcasts, there's news, there's social media, there's all these things. How much are you giving God a chance to be the loudest voice in your head through exposure to the word throughout the week, through prayer, through fellowship with believers, through discipling relationships with mature believers who can help you grow in your knowledge of God? And I do think that keeping worldly influences out of our thinking, this also ties into our ability to help people, specifically in our ability to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. I think James is saying true religion, pure religion, it shines like a candle in a dark cavern in a bleak world because it is so different than everything that is being taught out there. The world does not need some kind of churchified reheat of pop psychology and political talking points. What the world needs is this. This is the message we need to carry to them. What is in scripture? The church's effectiveness in reaching the world is directly tied to how different we are from the world. They have to see something different in us. The same goes for our personal witness as believers. I'll give you an example how this is been playing out just in the last month or so over at Lakeside. Uh, A lady filled out a a response card. She said she wanted to meet with some of the pastors. So we sat down to talk with her a couple weeks ago and said, tell us your story. And she said, well, we came here to church because a couple in our neighborhood that we know through kids baseball and stuff, they started following Jesus a few years ago and they just kept telling us about it. And they just kept telling us the difference it had made in their lives. And the neighbors basically said what Jesus told his disciples, come and see They said, come on, come and check out what what has changed our lives. So she said, we did. So they came to church and they came a couple more times. And the word she kept using, she said, when we come and we're around these Christians, I just feel lighter. I feel lighter being around Christians. She's got a, a middle school son that struggles at school. Nobody wants to be friends with this kid. And one of our senior high guys took this kid under his wing and befriended him in the first couple of weeks. And she said, I heard something different in the preaching that I've never heard anywhere else. I said, what's that? She said, I heard about Jesus, which figure that out, right? She's not heard this before. And she said, I'm I'm so curious, I wanna get a Bible. So should I get the Old Testament or the New Testament? I said, good news, they come together. Um, (laughs) We can hook you up, all right, we got that for you. 
So we talked for a couple of hours and at the end of the night, she got down on her knees. She accepted Christ as her savior. And she came with her fiance. I'm meeting with them this afternoon because they said, before we get married, we wanna know what it means to have Christ in the middle of a marriage. That is all because somebody talked about what had happened in their life. And the Holy Spirit gets all the credit. When anyone comes to Christ, the Spirit does the work, but the Spirit was using their neighbor who looked different than everybody else. The Spirit was using a bunch of church people who welcomed them when they came. The Spirit was using preaching that was not afraid to say your only hope is Jesus Christ. The world's not going to do that. Religion stained by the world's not gonna do that. Pure religion looks different than everything else that's out there. So let's sum up. What do we learn from James here? James, understand, he's not just lecturing us to change our behavior. He is warning us that we need to evaluate the true condition of our hearts. If you claim to be a Christian, what does that actually mean to you? Is it just a prayer that you said at some point? Is it how you vote? Is it a list of doctrines you say you believe in? Your doctrine has to be correct, of course it does, but your doctrine has to translate into action. If you truly believe the things in this book, it will transform the way you act. Multiple times in the Old Testament, God tells the people of Israel that they can throw their outward religion in the trash can if their heart is not aligned with him. Look at Amos chapter five, verses 21 through 24. God talking to Israel here, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God is saying, get rid of the rituals if your heart's not right, because that's where it all starts. Now, a true Christian, we're not perfect in any of these areas. I have to confess way more than I want to admit because of the things I say and the people I don't help and the way I let worldly thinking creep in on me sometimes. But a true Christian is not content to stay there. And a true Christian knows I'm not gonna change through my own effort. I'm going to change because I stay close to God and he changes me from the inside out through the Holy Spirit. I recently read about a pastor down in Austin, Texas, who anytime he's interviewing someone for a leadership role at the church, he has one make or break question he asks. He said, when is the last time the gospel made you weep? When's the last time? And if they don't have a recent example, they don't get the position. Why is he so stringent about that? Because he knows the only people who will be sold out to helping others are those who are completely aware all the time of how much God has done for them because if they know they have been transformed through the mercy of God, through Christ's sacrifice on our part, they will change and they will serve the people around them because of that. So when was it for you? Can you think of the last time the gospel made you weep out of gratitude that God would do this for you? For me, it was last night. Came to an event here for an addiction recovery ministry and I heard people telling their stories about how God came to them when they were at their lowest point, when no one thought they could change and they were transformed by the gospel of Christ. 
We need those reminders in front of us all the time because that constant realization of what God has done for us through the work of the Son of God, that would change us to the very core of our being. Preach that gospel to yourself over and over again. Remind yourself every day that Jesus came to you at your lowest and paid the price for your sin. If we do that, I guarantee if we draw close to God, anyone who watches us will have no doubt about what fuel is being burned inside of our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the only reason we even get to talk to you today is because of Jesus. You are holy, we are not. Our sins separated us from you. But Christ came and paid that price for us. And Lord, let us every single day be blown away that a holy God would sacrifice himself for lowly, poor sinners like us. Lord, I thank you for that gift of salvation. I pray for the Christians in the room, those who believe in you, those who claim to follow you, that these words of James and, and largely of Jesus himself will seep into our hearts and let us realize we have got to be transformed by aligning ourselves with you. And that's not an effort issue, that is a getting close to you issue, Lord. Help people to open your word, help them to pray, help them to talk with other believers so they can grow. And then let us go outside these walls and shine for you. Let people see there's a difference with these Christians. These people love people like no one I've ever met. Help us to be selfless. And Lord, I pray if there's people here today, and I'm sure there are who have never put their faith in Christ, that what they hear today is that Christ has done the work for you. He's paid the price for your sin. Lord, I pray that you will draw people to yourself through these words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.